the ideal of pure faith in God, in which you, uh, as somebody who has known of the existence of God, without question so far, in which you have never heard anyone else say anything different, in which you don't know anybody who doesn't think like that. On the entire planet, everybody thinks like you do. That sort of pure faith in God. Does anyone on earth still have that? Because even the people who do say they have pure faith in God, in my community at least, they at least know about the rest of us and they know that there's an alternative way of thinking. So it's not pure in the same way, I suspect. It's polluted. There's a little niggling problem that you have pure faith in God in something like opposition to the atheists and the agnostics and the rest of them. And then, after the idea of pure faith in God, the idea of pure faith in the institution of a monarchy by divine rule, in which God has invested the right to rule in a monarch. Yeah. Not necessarily the monarch who happens to be on the throne right now, but in the institution of a monarch. You know, that is not in question. You know, in certain cultures in history which have a pure faith in God and at the same time have a pure faith that God has invested power in a monarch. Uh, the one that springs to mind is in ancient Egypt, perhaps, the pharaoh. That's the idea that I want to explore in this episode. The idea of pure faith in God uh, prompting a pure faith in a monarchy by divine rule. So this episode is about a monarchy by divine rule. That institution, that political institution... Um, and I refer to that, you know, I was fishing around in the coming episode as to what even, to even call that sort of monarchy, you know, and I call it a perfect monarchy, a pure monarchy, a divine monarchy, you know, I'm fishing around for different ways to put that, but, you know, I've come in back here to the start of the episode to say, no, I'll call it a monarchy by, by divine rule, because I think that's what other people call it. Okay. That's that. Uh, the analogy that I'm heading towards is the ideal of pure faith in indig indigenous traditional beliefs, you know, such as you know, possibly many indigenous people had in Australia before Europeans came and polluted that. Okay, I'll say no, not much more about that. I'll just say 
that, you know, is there any Indigenous person alive now in 2019 that has that pure faith or has that been smashed? Not because, you know, not because, you know, an Indigenous person today could have pure faith still, I suppose. You know, they could claim to have pure faith, but they would have this niggling problem eating away at them that they only had that faith um, in the context of other people not having that faith, and not only that, a lot of people not having that faith. In fact, most people not having that faith. If you've got pure faith, if you're an Indigenous person, you've got pure faith in Indigenous cultural, you know, traditional in, uh, Indigenous beliefs, you are only having that faith, not in a vacuum, as, you know, perhaps Indigenous people had before Europeans came to Australia, not that sort of pure faith in, you know, the rainbow snake or whatever else is involved with the Indigenous cultures. Um, but you're looking around you and you say, and you, you say people, I have pure faith in Indigenous traditional beliefs, you know. Um, but, you you know, you know that they don't um, in as much as uh, that sort of level of pure faith could only be that pure, could only be pure if nobody else, uh, if they knew nobody else who didn't have that pure faith, you know. Um, now, you know, perhaps, alas, Indigenous people have strong faith, but they know that that is just one strong faith among many and that it's not even a very major one in the world. In fact, that it's very much a minority belief, very much a minority belief, you know, where, you know, so pure faith was killed. You know, uh, things in the past killed pure faith in the Western world. People like Socrates killed pure faith. The Renaissance killed pure faith. The Enlightenment further killed pure faith, you know, quite a lot. <laughs> um, and Europeans come, coming to Australia killed pure faith amongst the Indigenous peoples. Um, and, you know, the, the Enlightenment killing off pure faith in the Western world um, killed off the idea of a monarchy by divine rule. We don't have, really have those in the world anymore. Monarchies by divine rule. The French Revolution uh, notably saw that idea off, you know, and Queen Elizabeth II uh, here in, you know, our monarch is not a monarch by divine rule. Nothing like it. The French Revolution saw that monarchy off. That's gone. You know, Elizabeth I, she knew she was a monarch by divine rule um, and perhaps not as pure as monarchs before her were monarchs by divine rule. And I'm thinking once again of the pharaohs, but I'm also thinking of the emperors in the Eastern Roman Empire, for example, after the Western Roman Empire fell. You know, I'm sure they were even more pure, more the case of monarchs by divine rule. And then, you know, with the indigenous peoples, um, same thing. You know, there was a time when the faith was pure and the beliefs in the indigenous traditional values were pure, you know, and they were divine, divine.
you know, not divine in in the look, you know, divinity in the sky sense, but divine in the sense of connection to the land and the climate and all that. That's what this episode is about, I think. A lot of what's coming is me fishing around to discover for myself what this episode is about, but I think that's what it's about. That's what this episode is about. But I also mention a couple of other political systems as I go, and another one of those political systems is called a constitutional monarchy, such as we have in Australia. Okay, so a divine monarchy. I will call it a divine monarchy. A divine monarchy, uh, or perfect monarchy, and a constitutional monarchy. Okay, and then by the by, I also talk about an American-style republic, you know, a US-style republic. Okay, that's another form of politics. You know, that's another political system. A US-style republic. And I rather compare the three. A divine monarchy, a constitutional monarchy, and a a US-style republic. Now, whenever I start talking about those three political systems, if my mum happens to be in the room, she always, you know, she always mentions, don't forget the Irish-style republic. And, um, and she makes a good point, because when I start talking about a US-style republic, republic, which is a kind of extreme form of republic in some ways, um, and, um, you know, not very sober, you know, especially since Donald Trump's got in, it's not a very, what you'd call, the head of state is not what you'd call a, a, a sober kind of, and I don't mean in the drinking sense, he's a teetotaler, Donald Trump. I mean, you know, um, a drunk with power. You know, that's, um, a US style, the US style republic is not very sober. Hasn't been for a very long time. Um, and uh, my mum uh, always sort of suggests, you know, if, for example, Australia went to a republic, it wouldn't necessarily have to go to a US-style republic. It could go to an, a, a much more gentle Irish-style republic. And she's right. Okay? So, all right, let's say that there's four types of uh, republic in play at the moment. A divine monarchy, as I will call it. A constitutional, constitutional monarchy. A US-style Monarchy, uh, huh. <laughs> will be one day. I mean, if it keeps going the way it's going, a U.S. style republic and an Irish style republic. Four systems. A thought for the day. Uh, we may have another referendum. Oh, we haven't had one yet, have we? Yeah, we may have a referendum one day. And this uh, episode is going to be about politics in the end. But we may have a referendum one day on whether we should become a republic or not. I feel we've already had a referendum on that, but, you know, I can't even quite remember. I I get mixed up. All right. We had a referendum on same-sex marriage. I know that much. Or, you know, or did we just vote? You know, did we have a vote about what our opinions should be? Uh, Did we have a referendum on which way we lean on that? But, you know, sometimes when you... Uh, have a referendum on which way the people lean, 
well, there might as well be a referendum on whether we should have that thing or not, because if you go against which way the people lean, you might be in trouble. And, you know, um, and on same-sex marriage, you know, you had Tony Abbott, for example, very strong advocate against same-sex marriage, and... Um, uh, but as, and as soon as the people voted that they leaned towards uh, same-sex marriage, he said, then I'm all for it, you know. And he went to his sister's wedding, to, who, which was to a woman, and he called her sister-in-law and, you know, 100% went with, um, you know, if it's the law, you know, I'll argue strongly against it, he said, but if we all voted in, I'm all for it, you know. And that's, you know, that's a sign of a on one level a pretty good bloke maybe is it you know an utter bastard for what he was arguing for but uh, pretty civilized in as much as when the vote didn't go his way he um you know he didn't um say that um i am going to continue to fight against that thing you know what i mean whereas you know like in american politics for example um the Democrats, you know, before, you know, they had a recent election, you know, they're not that recent now, but to get Donald Trump in, you know, no, they had an election about who should be the next president, and, um, and before the election, when the Democrats thought they were going to win, all the people said, Donald Trump, you know, commit to agreeing to the verdict of the people, you know, they were very strong on that. And he's, you know, Donald Trump being Donald Trump said, I'm not going to commit to anything. And they, and they said he was an atrocious person for not agreeing to... And they were absolutely, you know, fairly certain that Hillary was going to win. Um, <coughs> but then, you know, and in that respect, um, Donald Trump is no Tony Abbott. You know, Tony Abbott said, I will abide by the decision of the people, you know, um, as something that's more important than even my own values, you know. And... Um, and but Donald Trump wasn't like that. He's a bastard, that guy. And he wouldn't make any such commitment. But Hillary, she was wonderful. She was beautiful. She was, um, she was planning. And all the Democrats and all the progressives, all the people voting for, um, you know, the elite progressives and even the peasants who love the dazzling elite um, establishment and Hillary and Bill and Obama and, you know, Paul McCartney and Meryl Streep all on Richard Branson's yacht and you know, um, and all smiling with beautiful white teeth and all the poor people love them for it. You know, that's the dream when you're in the, the elite establishment. Anyway, um, so, you know, and Hillary um, and Merrill and all those people, you know, they, you know they, they would have had that attitude too. Surely they did. I, I'd have to go and check, you know, the records. Uh, but, you know, abide by the decision, Donald Trump. And then the minute Donald Trump got in unexpectedly, all the beautiful people said, not my president. So they were bastards too, you know. They were bastards too, just like Donald Trump is a bastard. Bastards all around. <laughs> Sorry for the swearing, kids. All right, but I'm not swearing. Um, you know, that's sort of a, a comedic type of swearing. But, you know, Tony Abbott, the complete opposite, really, surely complete opposite to all that at least um okay i'm not sure if he's been tested uh on other issues but he was tested on same-sex marriage um but you know we might have a referendum on whether we should become a republic and i feel we might have had one of those but you know i'm getting old and i can't remember and if we have another one you know the question is um 
you know, is that referendum, is that referendum going to be, uh, what is that referendum about, you know? And is it a referendum to shake off the British monarchy or not? Or is it a referendum to not do that so much, or even at all, really, um, you know, it, but to um, give up one style of head of state in favour of another style of head of state? Is the referendum about that instead? You know, is it about cutting the apron strings of from England? Is it about shaking off a, a you know, a queen, a ruler, you know, the sort of ruler that the Romans used to hate, the idea of, uh, you know, an absolute ruler. Um, is it about shaking off a queen? We do not need a queen. We can rule ourselves. Is, is, is it that sort of, you know, is it like the French Revolution, you know, and I think that was 1789 when, you know, the people, you know, the liberals said, or whoever they were, um, said, we must get rid of the king who wields absolute power. You know, or we must get rid of the nobility in favour of something much more, you know, liberty, egalité, fraternity, you know. Would we be voting for that in a referendum? Or would we be voting in a referendum for getting rid of nothing like that, you know? Is Queen Elizabeth II acting via Peter Cosgrove, our Governor-General, nothing like that? Do we not even have that sort of monarchy? Do we have a... Do we not even have a monarchy per se, as the word monarchy has always been understood in history? Have we got a constitutional monarchy, which is actually a completely different beast, and which is nothing like that? And if we were to have a referendum, um, would it be to switch from a Peter Cosgrove-style head of state, with you know who does who does nothing? You know, who interve- interferes, let's say, and intervenes, pretty much not at all, just once every half a century to dismiss a PM, but otherwise stays pretty quiet and does nothing, never gets onto Twitter, you know, never really makes it, never declares war, never does anything, leaves most of that sort of stuff to Parliament. Would we be voting to get rid of that sort of head of state? in favour of a Donald Trump-style head of state. So there are two options I've just canvassed there. Are we shaking off a monarchy in the French Revolution sense, or are we simply having a referendum to switch from a Peter Cosgrove-style Governor-General to a Donald Trump-style President, you know? Um, Now, it is not stupid, perhaps, to feel strongly for voting yes, let's go to a referendum, or no, let's not. Intelligent people will vote each way. But is it possible, you know, could you call anyone who has strong opinions on this matter and is not aware of the two different scenarios I just canvassed, which can't be both true, um, is it possible to say that those people shouldn't get a vote? Is it even possible to call those people 
if they have strong opinions on whether we should become a referendum, whether we should become a republic or not, is it possible to call those people either negligent or stupid? Now, Marty, only asking the question, um, you know, I'm not in the habit of smashing other people for their opinions, but I'm saying if they have a deliberately, negligently or stupidly um, ill-informed opinion on what they're even voting for, you know, are you allowed to smash them as if you were a Facebook warrior smashing people out there to smash people. Are you allowed to call them stupid? Are you allowed to call them everything under the sun? Well, you know, I lean towards yes. But then I would have to say that even I, you know, and I, I, I think I understand the issues involved in a referendum to go to a republic um, to the level of sophistication as I have just outlined, but I think I'm ill-informed too, so all these things are relative. I'm sure there are levels to this argument that are much more sophisticated than even I understand, so there's levels of stupidity, but um, all the people are stupid. You know, that's what I suspect including me let's get on with the episode and uh there's going to be some noise which i will explain later due to circumstances beyond my control testing one two three testing one two three I'm at the pool, and another reason I wanted to test just then was I wasn't sure whether you'd be able to even hear me because of all the ambient noise, the white noise of the swimming pool. I've got my kids at the pool, but yeah, you can hear me, Um, that's good enough. Stop the press. I'm jumping in here long after I've left the swimming pool, about an hour after I've left that swimming pool that was making all that background noise there. And I popped in and had a listen to that which I recorded. And I have noticed that from this point forward, my voice starts to get louder. So can I suggest turn the volume on your device down about now. Uh, I think that would be wise. Um, and I, I, th- I think the reason that I was speaking loudly was the same reason uh, that sometimes we speak too loudly in nightclubs. Not that I've been to a nightclub for about 30 years, but in a nightclub, sometimes the music is so, often the music is so loud that you go up to another person especially when you're very young you know after you you know the first three sort of girls you try and uh, go and chat to slap you in the face you know because you go up to their ear and they and you start yelling you know would you like a dance you know would you like a dance you know bang you know left hook 
try again, bang, right hook, you know, and so on. Um, and that's because you can't hear yourself speaking. Um, and then you learn after a while um, to just speak in a low voice, even though you can't hear yourself in a nightclub. And you go up to a girl and you say it nice and quietly, would you like to dance? Bang! You know, uppercut. <laughs> it wasn't about the voice. <laughs> All right then, so turn your volume down and um, on with the show. Continuing on. Australia is a constitutional monarchy, which has which bears no resemblance to the ancient style monarchy, in which the king derived his power from God. In our version of what we call a monarchy, which is a constitutional monarchy, the queen, because we've got a queen at the moment, derives her power from the people. It is, it is a very opposite thing, you know. So when people call for a republic and they say we must get rid of the monarchy, for example, you know, in a bubble, that comment makes no sense, you know. Because you sort of think, are you, do you, when you say monarchy, do you know what you're talking about? You know, you're saying you're getting rid of the monarchy. Is this, you know, is it in your head that our monarchy is something like the monarchy that Queen Elizabeth I ruled over? Uh, or the one that Queen Elizabeth II is, you know, a slave to, you know? Because Queen Elizabeth II uh, is essentially there by the grace of the people. She's our queen, you know, by, uh, by our own grace. Um, and, you know, any tick of the clock, and we could knock off that monarchy uh, rel relatively easily. Yeah, I almost half think that England will knock off its own monarchy before Australia knocks off Queen Elizabeth I, you know, uh, Queen Elizabeth II. You know, as soon as Queen Elizabeth II dies, maybe the English will knock the monarchy off, their own monarchy, but we will, we will not, you know, which I think would be extremely interesting constitutionally if England did not have a monarchy, a constitutional monarchy, and we still did, you know. And um, for fun, um, I've imagined that we could achieve that um, you know, and this is as close to an original idea as I ever have, I've imagined that we should retain Queen Elizabeth II as our monarch even after she dies, you know. Um, and we could just repeat recordings of her Christmas address each Christmas and just put it on repeat for the next thousand years, you know. Um, and I think we would function quite well. Um, I think that would be an excellent idea. Keep her photo on our coins. You know, don't start putting skeletons. You know, we might, we might, we're a funny, you know, we're, we're good practical jokers, we Australians. I wouldn't say put a skull in the shape of the probably, um, the, you know, decomposed queen. Oh, this doesn't sound very nice, does it? My daughter has been playing endlessly. She's been playing clips from the musical Sweeney Todd to me lately. So 
if I had come up with some gruesome ideas, it's her fault, okay? But, um, you know, um, so I have, all, I have been sort of thinking for a while that we should retain Queen Elizabeth II even after she dies, and even if England should knock off the monarchy, and just continue on with our system of Governor-Generals reporting to the now-dead Queen. Um, that's not a big deal. The Queen really has no, um, does not interfere in Australian politics at all anyway. And I think I'm going to argue eventually that's a, that that's a wonderful thing. I love the idea of a head of state doing next to nothing. It's the sign of a very, um, a very relaxed and powerful culture. A head of state doing nothing. Compare Australia where the Governor General and the Queen do next to nothing. You know, the Governor General popped up around about um, 75, 85, 95, 2005, 2002, 45 years ago and, dis and dismissed our government of the day. Gough Whitlam was the Prime Minister. But other than that, the Governor General has done nothing in the history of Australia much, you know. Um, and, th and that's what I call a very healthy idea for a head of state. Compare that to Donald Trump or any of the American presidents, you know, who wield, when they feel like it, enormous power. Our head of state, uh, the Queen Elizabeth II, wields no power, essentially. You know, she's sitting there quietly and so is the Governor-General and could bring down the hammer, uh, but doesn't. Hardly says a thing at all, year after year. I see that as a sign of a country with a very powerful institution, um, as you know, a head of state institution. And I see, um, you know, and this is my personal opinion, but um, I'm not political in these podcasts, so I'm just saying, you know, what looks like to me like uh, something that looks more stable. I'm not voting one way or the other. Um, and I see something like the system they've got in America where Donald Trump is making huge calls every single day, uh, lots of calls on Twitter, and Obama before him was doing lots of things too, interfering, interfering all the time in the political, the daily political life in America. And, uh, you know, that's a kind of republic, you know. There's another kind of republic the way the French have got it, but let's just focus on the American one for a minute. And, um, you know, and I imagine sometimes that if we went to a republic in Australia, we'd go to an American-style one because American culture is so pervasive in the world that um, you can't actually dictate what sort of republic a country's going to have. Um, the culture of the country and the attitudes of the people uh, tend to drive what sort of republic, you know, the way they vote will drive the sort of president you would get in place. And my feeling is you'd get an American-style president who is voted in, unlike our head of state, and so um, is trying to impress the people and needs to be seen to be doing something or he's not a good president. Where um, in Australia, our head of state, if um, to be a good head of state, she, or in her stead, the Governor General, he, at the moment, we had a, you know, we've got uh, Peter Gros Cosgrove at the moment, before that we had Quentin Bryce, uh, a woman, so he or she um, is seen to be doing a good thing if he, she or he does nothing, okay? A there's a huge difference in there in the activities of the head of state, all right? And, and not all of this is written down in the Constitution that this is how it should be, but it becomes cultural and, you know, it becomes a matter of practice, you know? Um, you know, for example, 
the American head of state was never allowed to, um, and he's not allowed to as far as I know, um, unilaterally declare war, you know. But, um, you know, and even back in, as far, not so long ago, but after World War II, during the Nuremberg trials, <coughs> an American prosecutor was questioning, I don't know who it was, one of the Nazi leadership, and, um, you know, was it, was it Himmler or something like that, and said, and said to him, and Himmler said, we, you are just like us, you are just as evil as us, you know, um, and, you know, just like Hitler declared war, so can your president, and the prosecutor said, that's where you're wrong, actually, Congress has to approve, um, uh, sorry, wait for that, Congress has to approve it before we can go to war, you know? And um, so that was the status quo back then. But nowadays, you know, Donald Trump, you know, a succession of presidents has become more and more hawk-like, you know, and that's all of them. Republican, Democratic, um, Democrat, Republican and Democrat. Um, the people have shut up and not said anything whilst uh, president after president has been using executive style orders to wage war, you know, ever since Vietnam, um, all the way through to now, you know, Iraq, you know, and always claiming special circumstances like 9-11 or whatever, you know, we must declare war. We don't even need the permission of Congress. I'm going to make a special order, send the tanks in, you know, send the aeroplanes in, okay? And then Donald Trump comes along, and by the time, even before Donald Trump comes along, Obama didn't change the rules. Obama kept those rules, he was happy with those, and nobody complained because he was the good guy. Unless you hate him. Um, so, this is a situation where the people of America allowed the good guy to have powers that he shouldn't have under the American Constitution, as far as I know, but they shut up because he's a good guy. And they're so short-sighted because how do they know a bad guy isn't going to come in next? And, you know, if you think Trump is bad, some people think Trump is great, you know. But if you think Obama was a nice guy, I don't think anyone thinks Obama was very good in the end. But, you know, just imagine you think Obama was good. Um, and, um, and you say, oh, we'll let him have executive orders, you know. We won't, you know, if he, if, if he decides to just launch a war, we'll say that's okay, we don't mind that, because he's a nice guy, he's so beautiful, you know. Um, and then Donald Trump comes along and said, you made the rules, I have the power, you know. And, and Donald Trump, even when he's not declaring a war, still makes sure everyone knows he's got that power. He's an expert at that, he's absolutely amazing at playing that game. So, very recently, I think it was only about last week, the president is doing big things in America. Every single day, he is wielding power and he's letting everyone know who's boss. Every single day, you know. And Australia, the head of state is never doing that. You know, most Australians don't even know who the, the, the um, head of state of Australia is. You know, in, you know the Governor General, Peter Gos Cosgrove, because the Queen really isn't, you know. Peter Cosgrove is the only one who can actually 
you know, the Queen's going to say yes to whatever Peter Cosgrove says, you know. She actually has no power to do anything else. We'll get to that. We're going to talk about the perfect monarchy in this episode, in which the monarch has a lot of power, in fact, absolute power, as given to the monarch by God. Queen Elizabeth II has not got that power. She is not that sort of monarch, nothing like it. She, in fact, she's almost like a bizarro monarch. You know, you know bizarro, uh, Superman. Um, the opposite of that sort of monarch. She has got no power, really. Um, she has to do what we say in Australia. She cannot interfere. If the Queen Elizabeth II tried to interfere in Australian politics right now, we would just knock her off. She'd be off our coins in five minutes flat. We do not have a perfect monarchy in Australia. We do not even have a monarchy in that sense. We have a constitutional monarchy, which is a very different thing, in which the Queen is our Queen only because we want it to be so. She's almost our slave, you know. Very, very different thing than Queen Elizabeth I. Queen Elizabeth II works for us. Queen Elizabeth I works for God. It's a completely different system, you know. And I think it's not a bad system, and I'm just saying that, you know, look, you might think I'm being political there. We'll, we'll you know, listen to all my episodes on politics um, before you make that judgment. Um, but I'm going to be discussing the virtues of all the political systems. Um, yeah, just a second, Alex. Um, just a second. Um, uh, but the Queen Elizabeth II is a constitutional monarch. Now, if we were to have a referendum in Australia, and I'm talking about European Australia, not Indigenous Australia, I will get to Indigenous Australia. That's a different political system again. We, um, you know, right up to 1967, really, we had two distinct political systems on the one continent in parallel with each other. Um, Indigenous Australia and uh, European Australia. And then in 1967, um, we invited Indigenous Australia into European Australia by, you know, uh, all voting and giving them the vote. Now, if I was an Indigenous Australian, I probably would have said, stick your vote, you know, and kept going with Indigenous Australia, you know. But um, all credit to the Indigenous Australians, I think they took a fairly pragmatic view on that and decided, let's try and blend the two Australias into one. Uh, but essentially, because European Australia was so dominant compared to Indigenous Australia, it did have the sort of feel of them joining our club, you know. But, you know, moves are afoot, I think, among, in the minds of many of us, to try and bring that back to parity a little more um, and try and make it a more genuine blend. Um, so, look, I've got to stop there, but I'm going to talk about a perfect monarchy in this, which is not what we've got. If you were voting for a referendum in a referendum for Australia to go to a republic, it's not really getting rid of a monarchy. In fact, it's not getting rid of a monarchy such as, you know, Elizabeth I was, a, was queen of. Um, it's not getting rid of that sort of monarchy. So when people say, we must get rid of the monarchy and cut the apron strings to England, we don't even have that sort of monarchy. We have a constitutional monarchy in which the Queen derives her power from the people. In fact, we give her no, and then on top of that, we give her no power, okay? So where a referendum to become a republic 
would be a vote in, as far as I can tell, to get rid of a head of state that does nothing and replace that head of state with a president who does a hell of a lot every day. Because I think if we had a president, he would or she would have to do a lot every single day, make big calls, uh, and um, or else he or she would get voted out in favour of another president who would make big calls, you know. So which sort of head of state do you want? One that does nothing or one that does a lot? No. Um, and, uh, you know, that's what the referendum is about, I think, any such referendum. Um, it's got nothing to do with a monarch or cutting the strings or anything like that. It's a question of what sort of head of state do you want, you know, in my opinion. On a political level, you know, on an emotional level, it might have this idea of, you know, cutting the apron strings to England and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, we're a little too British, you know, if we want to be a truly multicultural. It's still got too much of a British flavour and we've still got a bit of a Union Jack on the flag and all that. But just on a purely political level, as far as I can tell, that would be the difference, you know. But all that sort of discussion is a long way off in these podcasts that I'm about to do, these episodes. I want to talk about, in this episode, a perfect, the idea of a perfect monarchy, which I'm kind of making it up, um, that term. And a perfect monarchy is a very different thing than that which we have in Australia. Oh, you know, I, I forget whether I uh, finished that thought about Donald Trump um, and what happened in America. Yeah, right now, the way he wields power is amazing, really. He's, a, he's, he's amazing at it. Even when he's doing nothing, he manages to do something. So last week, I think it was, he declared war against Iran, right? And apparently he had, you know, by, by his own reckoning, and I don't think anyone's disagreeing with this, he sent the aeroplanes into the sky, you know? So what he did, he declared war and didn't, and didn't even make a didn't even um, make a, uh, didn't even pretend that he would ordinarily consult Congress. Congress were reduced to irrelevant mice, you know. This is a far cry from the days when Congress had to sign off on going to war. Um, so, you know, America has changed even since World War II. It has changed its ways. Essentially, its constitution has changed, even if it is not changed in writing in the constitution, because of so many presidents in a row have wielded this power and nobody has stopped them, the rules have changed. You might as well change the constitution, you know? Um, that's the way it works with politics. We'll get to all of that. So if you've got your guy in, and you know, I didn't get all these ideas out of my own head. I've been listening to a podcast by who I, someone I think is a wonderful political commentator, Dan Carlin, you know, and he has planted all these ideas in my head and I love them. So I'm not actually giving you these ideas as something I necessarily think. I'm giving you these ideas as um, something Dan Carlin, the American political commentator, thinks. And I just happen to be putting them forward to you as ideas that I can't find fault with. Which is a very different thing than giving my political opinion, you know? Very different thing. I'm just passing it on, saying I actually can't, um, I can't find much fault in what he's saying here, Dan Carlin. Um, 
you know, um, you know, scientists, you know, we say, you know, is it falsifiable when someone says something? You know, that's a that's one of the tests of science. Is it is something that is proposed to you falsifiable? And I'm finding it difficult to falsify what Dan Carlin is saying here. Okay, and um, so Donald Trump, he started a war, but before it actually before they started dropping the bombs, he called it off. Now, to a casual observer, the net result of that is that he has done nothing. But he has done some, in reality, he has done something huge. He has wielded major power twice and relegated the Congress to the status of mice. Okay? I was a rapper then. I made that rhyme. And, um, and he had, what he did there was, you know, had a net effect of zero, but he did something big. He made the new constitutional rule that the president may uh, go to war unilaterally without consulting anybody. One man with his finger on the trigger, you know, the, the big red button that says that we go to war, the president can order the mighty U.S. military to bomb another country without asking anybody. All that power with one man, you know. And this is what has become of America. And America ended up with this scenario by sleepwalking towards it, right? Now, that sort of thing really can't happen in Australia uh, because, you know, it would have to go through Parliament, you know, which is like their Congress, you know, and the Governor-General can't declare war unilaterally, um, you know, so maybe um, it'd be very difficult to even start that process in Australia because we're not even starting with the Governor-General having a lot of power anyway. America already had a, had a President that already had a lot of power and all he did was add to it. You know, all what you might call the nice presidents did this. The nice presidents created Donald Trump. Bill Clinton created Donald Trump, you know, by using executive orders. Uh, Barack Obama created Donald Trump by using executive orders. Uh, George W. Bush did the same, and so did both, uh, both George Bushes did the same. Okay? So they created Donald Trump. You can complain about Donald Trump, but where were you when all the other presidents were doing these sorts of executive orders? Where were you stopping those presidents just in case a bad president came along? Now, did you not read Roman history when there were good emperors and you let them get away with whatever they want and then, a, then Caligula came along and you sort of said, well, I don't like what Caligula's doing. I liked what Augustus was doing, but I don't like what Caligula and Nero were doing. Why didn't you stop Augustus? You know, that sort of thing. Now, in Australia, we are not at that sort of risk, really. We've got a really well-balanced political system in European Australia, which happens to smash Indigenous Australia. I'll get to that another time. But, um, you know, uh, the, you know we, we are able to think on multiple levels, aren't we? Uh, I think, in this podcast. Um, we can say a European Australia is wonderful, European Australia is terrible in the same breath in different ways, okay? Now, 
So if we were to have a referendum in Australia, it would be a referendum, as I've said, to get rid of a Peter Cosgrove-style Governor-General who can't, for example, declare war and smash our judiciary whenever he feels like it and do all the things that Donald Trump does or and he can't dominate, um, you know, we would be, I lost track of which way I was going there, but we would be losing someone like Peter Gosgrove who can't smash the other institutions of Australia, you know, because uh, it's like a stool. You have a judiciary, an executive, you know, the, the legs of the stool of the judiciary, the executive, you know, judiciary, the executive, like Peter Cosgrove, the Governor General, and the Parliament, you know, uh, which is the third leg. And it all operates in a pretty good balance in Australia. Uh, if we had a referendum, I think we would be voting to go to an American-style system where one of the legs of the stool seems to have, you know, have all the power, um, and the fault of that is the people. Uh, because for president after president after president, they've been giving all that power to all the presidents. And, um, you know, especially in, after 9-11, they gave that power to the terrorists who were flying those aeroplanes by giving more power to the presidents. You know, that sort of thing. But the way America is set up, uh, one leg of the stool is getting very, very powerful and the other two legs are getting weaker and the stool could fall over. So, you know, on one level, possibly, if we voted in a referendum to go to a republic, we would be voting uh, to get rid of the stool that we have, which has three, what I call, strong-looking legs, and the stool looks pretty stable, and we'd be voting for to give our head of state more power um, you could say, no, 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 we promise we'll make him just like the Governor-General or her. When we elect a president, it'll be just like the Governor-General. But you've got, you know, there's, uh, American culture is so pervasive uh, that I bet, you know, are you willing to take the risk that our president wouldn't start flashing a smile uh, like an American president and on day one, start making promises about all the things he was going to do or she was going to do. Would our president say, I promise to do nothing in my first four-year term? Are we going to get a president like that? No. The, the people wouldn't, you know, they'd say, no, this is our fresh new republic. We want you to promise to do things. And the minute the people demanded that of a new president, because people are stupid, you know, I honestly think people are pretty stupid, um, I'm pretty stupid. Um, I think they would do that. They would force the president to promise to do all sorts of things, or they, they would vote him out or impeach him and get one in that would. Okay, but I'm not talking about all that for the moment. That's a long way down the track. I'll be with you in one second. Yeah, uh, it's a long way down the track. Um, for now, I want to talk about a completely different political system that is not involved in Australia or in America at the moment but it will lead to those political systems. And it's nothing to do with Indigenous Australia, the political system of Indigenous Australia. It's to do with the idea of a perfect monarchy, as I shall call it, which we don't have in Australia and which we don't have in America. All right.
Uh, that's a big splash that comes down. You know, they've got this huge bucket and uh, the kids all lie down on the ground and the bucket slowly fills up and then it turns over and drowns them all. Uh, but alas, never successfully. All right, this episode is about politics. Which is against my Zen talking about politics. But my Zen is about giving political opinions, you know, which I don't do. Or if I do, I do it accidentally. No, this isn't about um, talking about political matters. It's talking about politics itself, you know. So, so you know, if, it was, if this was a podcast on science, it wouldn't be talking about the, um, the, the discoveries of science. You know, if, if it was me doing a podcast on science, I probably wouldn't be talking about what science has come up with in the world. Uh, you know, and this is my zen. If it was me doing science, I'd be talking about what science actually is. And I think I've done that in previous episodes occasionally, or just mentioned it. You know, I'd say, oh, I want to talk about science, and I've talked about what, the, what science itself is, you know, which is very different than talking about um, what science has given us, or what science proposes as being true. Okay, so that's that, you know. So when I talk about politics, and this is my zen, I don't, I don't talk about whether I think, you know, and when I talk about politics, I'm talking about uh, social systems too. Um, social science, is it called? Uh, no, 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 that must be it. Um, social stuff, and I talk about economics, and I talk about politics. But, you know, the nature of those things, and what politics even is. Uh, and I think that serves me best to uh, try and investigate what's going on in Australia, for example. Um, and this is the Martian perspective, you know. All right, so politics. Now, what is it? Uh, well, you, you would already know what it is. Um, yeah, and, um, but, you know, I'll give you my take on what I think it is. And I think, it's, you know, it's what the chimpanzees do in the clans, in the jungles. You know, it's what we do in my family. You know, there's politics between myself and my wife and the children, between all of us. There's a huge amount of politics that goes on between the children. There's a huge amount of psychology. There's a huge amount of everything, you know. Um, there's a huge amount of loving and there's a huge amount of fighting you know what I mean um, nah, not too much fighting we do less of that than most I think alright um, so politics which is interwoven with social matters and economic matters and religion too ok now so chimpanzees in the jungle and my family you know, there's politics there, and there's politics over there too. Um, but, 
what I do like is the idea that politics arises from culture. Or does culture arise from politics? You know, um, I I'm going to take the approach that politics arises from culture. Okay, the, you know, the culture of, that is embedded into everyone in my family um, generates the politics in my household, you know, in our household. And the culture of chimpanzee clans gives rise to the politics they have, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, here's a theory, and this is the way science works. You're allowed to put up a theory and, uh, and, and then leave it to others, if you're lazy, to either prove or disprove that theory. Okay, um, so culture giving rise to politics. If that's true, when you say if that's true, that means it doesn't matter if it isn't, because we're just playing mind games here. But if that's true, uh, let, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a place like Australia, you know, geographical Australia, in which you have multiple cultures, but I'll just focus on two of those, European Australia and Indigenous Australia. Obviously, we, you know, um, Australia is uh, being flooded and in a good way, in a bad way, in a good way depending on who you are, by all the cultures of the world. Uh, but let's just focus on two to keep it simple, and then we can branch out to others another day in another podcast, and I'll probably never get around to that. Because this podcast at the moment is just about Indigenous Australia. Okay. Culture gives rise to politics, is the theory. Um, and it gives rise to a, um, a, a mob, you know, the word mob, we use that a lot with indigenous people, I think they use that with themselves, I like that word, but the culture of a mob, whether that mob be Huns or Bog Irish or the English, you know, or Ethiopians um, or uh, um, a modern gen, gen Z, generation Zs, you know, who grew up with mobile phones. The culture that those people have give rise to the politics between the members of the group. Oh, let's call it groups. Okay. So, um, what we have in Australia, ignoring all the cultures except Indigenous and European Australians. Um, which will, you know, and those two cultures will give way, give way to some extent to other cultures in time. I think they'll both die. I think European Australia will die, and I think Indigenous Australia will die eventually. You know? um, don't you love people who say that? History will prove, you know, because what can you say? You know, you can say, I think you're wrong, and I can say, I think I'm right. And, you know, who's going to be alive a thousand years for now? from now to see who wins the $10. It's a dirty trick, you know, to say history will prove 
Yeah. History will show that the voters of Donald Trump will have destroyed America. Yeah. Well, actually, we might get to see that. <laughs> yeah. History will prove that the people who voted Clinton and Obama, those sorts of people, you know, what, uh, what I like to think of as the elite establishment, the beautiful people, um, the beautiful people who would dazzle you, the Hollywood stars, Richard Branson and his yacht, Clintons, um, the Obamas, the beautiful people um, who all get uh, Paul McCartney, Meryl Streep. Don't worry, I'm a Beatles fan. I love you, Paul. Please shut up. I love you, Paul, but please shut up. You know, um, I'll always love you, Paul. But um, so, um, yeah, but I think, you know, all right, indigenous culture's already been smashed. You know, it's a, you, uh, you know, cultures die by a thousand deaths. Uh, die a thousand deaths by a, a thousand cuts. Um, the indigenous Australia has already died many deaths. You know, the indigenous Australia we have today is not and cannot be as pure as it was. Even in remote mobs, it can't be pure. It can't be as pure as it was before the Europeans came here. Okay, um, and I, you know, I think I can back that up. Um, you know, let's imagine. I think there was a time, let's say, in um, when at the height of Christianity in the Eastern Roman Empire after the Western Roman Empire fell, and this was a time in Constantinople when you know all those arguments about iconic you know, iconoclasts, you know, and all that sort of stuff, you know, and I think it's fair to say um, that a lot of people in Constantinople, let's say all the people in Constantinople, we're philosophers, we can entertain ideas that are probably wrong, but let's say you had a whole suburb in Constantinople and everyone in that suburb believed, and this was their culture, believed that the Bible, okay? Believe the Bible as fact, okay? Now, part of that culture is not only that they believe that the Bible is fact, but because they all believe it to be fact, that means they know it to be fact, you know? You have to get into philosophy and um, investigate the different definitions possible there are for the word no, as in knowledge. But you know, you've got a culture there that, in Constantinople, that relies on the fact that everybody knows that, um, that the stories, all the stories in the Bible are, you know, hard facts. Now, step forward to the Renaissance, and we know that, you know, that's probably not true. Um, you know, there were people well before Constantinople in the time of the Eastern Roman Empire that did not necessarily believe the, you know, such things to be facts, you know, that they believed them to be myths, you know. Um, the ancient Greeks, for example, long before 
um, you know, this is um, you know, a thousand years before this Constantinople of which I speak, um, doubted these things as a fact. You know, so some of their books would still survive, but we're just playing here. Imagine any community. I think there are you know, communities in Ethiopia, you know, who, if you were to tell them that Jesus never turned water into wine in your opinion, would just look at you blank and say, what are you talking about, you know? I think there are communities in Australia like that, you know? No, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but anyway, imagine this fictitious mob, and I'm sure there have been real mobs like this in Constantinople, who, you know, their culture relies on the fact that all the stories in the Bible are literally true. Right. And then there comes to pass a time uh, when the Renaissance comes along and ancient Greek ideas are brought back. And obviously this is too simplistic, um, you know. Um, but, you know, imagine it is black and white like that, you know. And, um, and people start walking around the suburb of, that I'm speaking about saying things like, um, you know, and, and there's a sufficient number of them and they're inter clearly intelligent and wise and they say for, you know, a long time ago in history the whole, you know, the whole intellectual world was doubting these things to be true. Right, right there the culture changes. And how does the culture change? Well, not in large ways. The people probably you know, go and um, put those people to death. Those people who said the Bible might not be true, you know. Uh, they probably put them to death and they kill them. But the point is, they've eaten the apple, you know. Even back in ancient Israel, people doubted God, you know. Uh, and that's why the story of Adam and Eve comes along at all. People were afraid of knowledge back in ancient Israel. so. You know, pure faith, I'm not sure, really exists. People always doubt things because they're humans, you know. Uh, but let's, let's put that aside. We're going with a simplistic model here. Anyway, in Constantinople, the idea uh, that, um, that, you know, your culture of it being a self-evident fact that the stories of the Bible are true is... Uh, a very important uh, foundation of your culture. And then suddenly, like a, an alien idea, comes shooting out of the sky and some Renaissance man or woman comes into that community like a meteor and lands and um, disrupts that idea, that possibility, you know, and brings in a different possibility. Well, that meteor, that asteroid that has come in, that, that thinker, that Renaissance man, damages that culture just slightly. You know, they put, the, they put the Renaissance man to death for being a heretic, but the seed has been planted and they can't forget it. And people all around the suburbs, maybe in the privacy of their own homes, start talking about 
what the Renaissance man was saying that they put to death. And their culture is altered. Now what happens then, the way, you know, the politics also alters, I think, um, just slightly. Um, the king, or queen, usually the king, uh, were, you know, had divine right before that moment, and, you know, and um, monarchies are all about politics. All right. The political system of the monarchy gets damaged. Um, and the king, who had previously been seen as absolutely and literally appointed by God, now starts to look like just more, just a little bit more like a real person, a human, you know? And the seeds of egalitarianism, you know, start being sown, sowed, you know? Sowed, like in a crop, sown, like into a, a tapestry. <laughs> um, all right, and uh, so politics alters a little. Okay, so, all of this is to say that I'm running with the idea that culture gives rise to politics, you know, and thinking and information gives, you know, alters culture, you know, so information and thinking, you know, and science and theology and everything else um, alters culture and culture alters politics and, and, and politics alters the economics of a, a mob, you know, or in the modern era, a nation state and, um, and social, the social interactions of the people in the mob are also altered uh, by any change in culture, you know. So, taking the idea of the monarchy, and this is called a, I'll call this a perfect monarchy. A perfect monarchy. And I'll introduce this as our first, and I think most primitive, almost, political system that we humans have. Now, I think it's a primitive system, and um, you might think that's just a value judgment I'm having. But no, I'm calling it that because it goes back a long way. That's what I mean by primitive. Um, uh, I, I probably should look up what the word primitive means, you know. But, um, uh, but I mean primitive, you know, like we've had, we had it back in the Stone Age and we had it before then, you know, the idea. You know, and we had it back when we were chimpanzees because the chimpanzees have what? the dominant male in charge of the clan, and then everyone else is submissive to that, you know, the, the other males are put down into a lower order by the dominant male, and the women are treated like second-class chimpanzees, you know. So that's primitive. I don't mind saying chimpanzee clans are primitive in nature, in terms of their politics and their economics and their social habits. And yeah, I think that's fair enough. I don't know if they have religious habits. I've never been inside uh, a, a chimpanzee clan to long, for long enough to try and detect if there's any theology going on in there. 
But if I knew chimpanzee language and I spent 10 years inside a chimpanzee clan and learned how to grunt properly, I may well detect a little bit of theology going on. Primitive theology, you know? Hmm. So this is what I mean by politics. You know, culture gives rise to politics um, and thinking gives rise to politics. Yeah, and the uh, environment that a group of persons, um, there's a very famous philosopher, Australian philosopher, uh, Peter Singer. I think he is um, acknowledged by some to be the most famous philosopher in the world, alive. Is that true? Um, you know, some people say Australia's got no culture, and look at us. We might have the most famous philosopher in the world, you know. And, um, yeah, I've got other little fun facts about Australia. You know, people do say, oh, Australia, you've got no culture. We're talking about culture here in this episode, culture and politics, you know. We're going to get to Australian politics. I'm talking about European Australia here. Uh, but Peter Singer is a European Australian philosopher. And, um, and uh, he regards chimpanzees, for example, as persons, all sentient beings as persons. He says that, I think he says that a cow is a person, you know, because it has feelings and, um, you know, an elephant is a person in his, with his, you know, that's his reading of the word person. You don't have to, you can think this is a load of absolute rubbish if you want, but I'm just saying what he says. I'm not saying what I say. <coughs> but um, Peter Singer, very famous, you know. Australian culture runs very deep. We're going to get to that. All the Australian cultures run very deep. Indigenous Australia, the culture is 65,000 years old, but predates that even because the day they landed in Australia, the ancient Indigenous Australians, the very day the first, in, you know, what we call indigenous person landed in Australia, that person was part of a fully-fledged culture already. Absolutely no doubt about that. I don't mind saying that because all humans have politics and so do chimpanzees, you know. So that's uncontroversial, I think. And, um, and um, so, the, you know, um, indigenous culture goes back longer than 65,000 years because it was already fully formed when it got here to Australia, you know, and it kept evolving from there. Um, so it was, it was, it was 65,000 years old before it even got to Australia. You know, if you're talking modern humans, you know, how, when did modern humans sort of start coming to pop into the planet? Um, you know, let's say it was 300,000 years ago. I always, it's a bit rubbery, I think. Um, but that means 235,000 years old was the indigenous culture before it even landed in Australia and now it's about 300,000 years old. Now, European Australia, same deal. Um, when um, European Australia, you know, when the Europeans, when the British landed here in Australia, uh, 200, what is it, 250 years ago, hey, when were, now, Captain Cook, 1770, let's think about this. 1770, 2020, 
It's our 250, the 250th anniversary of Captain Cook landing next year, isn't it? It's 2019 now. That's going to be huge. Now, I'm a huge Captain Cook fan. Um, oh, all right. But, you know, 1788, let's say, when the first fleet came here, um, which, you know, next year will be 232 years ago. Is that right? No, don't worry about my math. Um, when we landed here, we were a fully fledged, deep and ancient culture already. You know, we had a fully set up system of laws, culture, politics. You know, that's European Australians. Hmm. You know, uh, the British who landed here, the very first Australians, if you shall call them that, um, very much claimed the Magna Carta as one of their inventions and the Westminster system of government, all right? Um, you know, like two brothers, imagine two brothers, one brother in England and one brother comes over to Australia. Look, they could be sisters, okay? Um, and the two brothers come to Australia and one of them uh, stays in England and one comes to Australia. Now, the day before those two guys came uh, split and said goodbye and gave each other a hug, the Magna Carta was very much owned by him as being part of his culture and so was the Westminster system of government. Okay, So each of those brothers can, absolutely has an equal claim to the Magna Carta as being part of his culture. Now, when the brother who comes to Australia lands in Australia, does he lose that claim? Well, I, I, I personally think that's a ridiculous thing to say. No, you know, because all the British laws and customs and everything continued along their merry way in Australia, of evolving, of course, but then so did England evolve after that moment too. So, at no point in time can you sort of draw a line and say that European Australians should no longer be claiming the Magna Carta and the Westminster system of government as being part of their culture. And yet those things predate, you know, go back further than 232 years, you know. So Australia is not a young culture. It goes back more than 232 years. It goes back more than 250 years. It goes back thousands of years for that reason. Okay, so when people say, oh, you Australians, you're just a young country, you've got no culture, I say, what about the Magna Carta? You know, that was a very long time ago. When was that? I'm very embarrassed, I don't know when that was, but I think it was King John um, and Robin Hood tried to steal it, you know, it was at that period. Um, you know, a long, long time ago. Um, and I'm happy to say that the ancient, you know, um, Celtic traditions are part of my culture. And so are the ancient Germanic traditions, the Anglo-Saxons and the Danish and all that sort of stuff, you know. Um, uh, just a second. One of the, there you go. One of the children came up, put his hand out and knew, I, you know, and this is, um, we are non-verbal in our family. I knew what to do. I put $5 in that hand and the hand went away. All right, 
So, getting back to, you know what I'm getting at, Australia, um, just like the chimpanzee, we're just like chimpanzees, you know, um, we go back a long way to the chimpanzees. So the day we landed, we had a fully-fledged culture. We were not a young culture, we were an ancient culture. Therefore, our politics was ancient already, and it went back and back and back. You know, uh, it went back 65,000 years. And then before that, it went back another 65,000 years, all the way back to the day that we were the same mob as the indigenous peoples of Australia, and we Sorry, there's the next splash. And we parted ways, you know. So Australia is an ancient, deep and powerful, European Australia is an ancient, deep and powerful culture, as is Indigenous Australia. The two different cultures are just responding to their own thinking, you know, and their own environment. You know, geography and climate and all that sort of thing dictates how you respond to your environment and climate and so on you know and humans wherever you may find them apply their genius as best they can to responding to their environments now i have to stop for a second because um there's controversy here about the five dollars just a second um what's that yes you can have that cold oh um, hang on, that one, there you go, 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 no, you do it, all right, so back to Constantinople, um, you have this situation, and we're talking about politics, you know, so I, um, in a minute, um, politics, um, you know, geography gives rise to the activities and thought patterns of the people who live in that geography, and you know, and, and that gives rise to their culture, the way they interact and all that sort of stuff. And that gives rise to their politics. Actually, all these things are in a big dance. And right there is the title of my uh, episode here, The Big Dance. Okay, it's all in a dance together. Eco uh, uh, the econom economics, uh, the politics, the social behaviors, um, and the environment and everything is in a big dance, you know, when it comes to any mob. All right, so back to Constantinople, um, you know, a Renaissance man who was before his time, let's have him land in Constantinople well before the Renaissance. A Renaissance man builds a time machine we don't even know about, goes back in time, lands like an asteroid in Constantinople, which is now called Istanbul, um, and which was once called Byzanti Byzant Byzantium, um, you know, the ancient Greek city, which became an, a Greek-speaking Roman city, um, Eastern Roman Empire, <coughs> you know, which eventually got overrun by um, the Turks, didn't it? You know, the um, Ottoman Empire, and, you know, and now the Turks are in there. And it's called Istanbul, not Constantinople. There's a song about that. All right. So, a Renaissance man lands in Constantinople, um, plants dangerous ideas in, into Constantinople, which has, Constantinople is a country which has pure faith, you know, 
you know, a little bit like living in a small town in America, in, in the Midwest of America, in the Bible Belt, you know, there's pure faith there because they haven't heard about science there yet. Science hasn't reached um, the Midwest of America. Uh, they still absolutely know that the Earth is only, that the universe is only 6,000 years old. They know that, as a matter of fact, and no one's actually been out there to tell them any differently. You know, just imagine that's true for the purposes of this uh, little thought experiment we're having here. Um, same goes, and the thought experiment becomes valid. Doesn't matter if it's true or not, it'll become valid in a minute when we get to indigenous culture, okay? Because when it comes to indigenous culture, we're not talking thought experiments anymore. We're talking about um, a, a mob who were isolated in that sense from, for example, ancient Greek uh, ideas of doubt. You know, the ancient Greeks were famous for doubt, being having the power to doubt themselves and to doubt their own belief systems, you know. And, you know, um, Aristotle, you know, he said, are you sure that God made man or did we make gods, you know? Uh, the Greeks were famous for that. There, there was precedence. People doubted gods before then. But I'm not sure that they doubted gods in the same way that Socrates and Plato and Aristotle doubted them. I think people more argued before that which gods were correct, you know? Like in ancient Jewish times, you, they were going to worship something, but it was just a question of whether it was going to be the one god or a golden calf, you know? Um, okay, um, you know, and, 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 that, and analogous to that is, you know, in ancient times, no one doubted that slavery was a natural thing that should exist in the, you know, in the in the um, old in the old world as we call it um, even the slaves and the slave masters agreed that slavery was a natural a naturally occurring phenomenon in the world um, and no one disagreed with that it was just a question of who was going to be the slaves you know whereas the abolishment of slavery which was an an idea as far as I know that kind of grew up in, um, in the minds of the Enlightenment thinkers. And the one who's famous for this is Wilberforce in England, you know. So the idea of abolishing slavery is a very different thing than, for example, um, someone setting all the slaves free back in the ancient world, but never saying that slavery shouldn't exist as an institution, you know. Yeah, yeah you can imagine a rich king um, not needing slaves any, in, in a, anymore um, and saying set all the slaves free because we just had a bumper harvest you know but still keeping it in his pocket that if we weren't lucky and we didn't have a bumper harvest or we hadn't conquered all these other lands and stolen all their wealth um, if that hadn't happened you know we would still be sticking with slavery you know, it's a much more modern idea to say that slavery is actually inherently a thing we shouldn't have, no matter what our, economies are, our economics are, you know. But anyway, let's get back to um, Constantinople. Constantinople, we're imagining, had a culture of what I'll call pure faith. Pure faith culture, okay? And that would have, I think, given rise 
to a pure monarchy. Nothing's pure in this world, but this is a thought experiment. So there's our first political system that I want to discuss in this episode called Politics. The perfect monarchy, I shall call it. Um, which arises from pure faith, in my opinion. Um, because pure faith is a type of thinking, right? Which gives rise to a certain type of culture, uh, but, you know, in which pure faith is not doubted by, is doubted by nobody in the entire mob, which gives rise to politics in which a king can be a king and his divine right will not be questioned even in the darkest corners of the minds of the peasants. Now, that particular king can be doubted. You know, like I said before with slavery, there were times when people say, hey, we shouldn't be the slaves, someone else should be the slaves, you know. And, and, I'm sh and all through history, even when people have pure faith, um, you know, they might have doubted that that king was the divine ruler, should be the divine ruler, and the, some other king should be the divine ruler. But the point is, the institution of the king was not doubted as a, a thing that was pure, correct, and right. The idea of the pure monarchy was not doubted, you know, in my thought experiment. And this is the first political system. This is all I really want us to keep in our minds um, for the purposes of this episode, um, which I will, um, without any further ado, uh, I am deciding to break up into multiple parts. Okay, this is called politics, this episode, but it's going to be politics part A, politics part B, politics part C, politics part D, and in each um, of these, you know, um, parts, I will discuss, I'm just resolving to do this right now, a different political system. And the first political system I'm discussing is the pure monarchy, what I'm calling the pure monarchy, which is a theoretical idea, a pure monarchy, but it's going to become important when we eventually get to Australia and the political system that is modern Australia, or the political systems plural, you know, which is a combination of European Australia, which I see as a capitalist society with socialist elements. More on that another day. You know, and um, in parallel to that, indigenous politics, you know, which is an entirely different thing. And on top of that, the politics of other cultures coming into Australia as a third leg. You know, the politics, for example, of um, Muslim immigrants, you know, many or some of which you know, most of which are absolutely fitting in beautifully uh, with our European-style politics. I see uh, Islamic politics as sort of Arabic kind of politics, you know. It arises from Arabic culture. And European, European politics, I see as arising from, you know, the Enlightenment and everything that went before that, um, you know. So it's almost like a classical... Um, uh, political system and I see uh, and so on you know what I'm getting at with all that I don't need to go on about that but we're talking about a pure monarchy here and it's going to get important eventually um, when we come to talking about Australia which is what I want to get to eventually okay um, 
So, we have a, what you might call a mini revolution in Constantinople in my thought experiment because you have this thing where there is such a thing as the institution of the monarch is pure before this asteroid lands, this renaissance man before his time, this renaissance man who's been reading Aristotle and Plato's Republic and all that sort of thing. You know, this renaissance man um, lands in Constantinople and starts sharing dangerous ideas and shares so many of them, he shares enough of them before he is slaughtered by the state, you know, Constantinople, as a heretic and burnt at the stake. Um, he shares enough ideas so that those ideas are now planted in the heads of the people of Constantinople and their faith is no longer pure, right? And we have now um, people wondering whether, just wondering in a very, very small way, whether God does invest divine right to power in kings, the institution of kings, not a specific king. You know, I made that clear surely that, you know, in terms of my read of these things, I am no political scientist. I'm just giving you my read of the way these things look to me. All right. So we have now moved, we're now about to talk about an impure monarchy. That'll be my second political system, but just lock it in. You know, that quite possibly, especially in chimpanzee clans, but in many monarchies around the world, you know, before dangerous Greek ideas, for example, took root, um, and other ideas too, that all around the world you had chimpanzee-like pure monarchies, or pure enough, you know, who absolutely believed in the divine right of kings, you know, and the kings would, um, you know, if peasants ever questioned a king, not the institution of the kingship, I think that was fairly locked in, um, but you know, even the institution of the king, but the kings and the nobility would gather about themselves priests in a symbiotic arrangement, and they would say, we will make you fat. You know, we will feed you and make you fat. We will give you wealth, we'll give you gold for your churches. Um, if, when we claim to have divine right to rule, you will agree that God is in touch with you in your dreams, you know, um, and speaks to you and agrees, you know. So, you will provide our legitimacy, you know. So, you know, this naturally comes to pass. Chimpanzees would probably get priests. And, you know, they probably have priests in their own little way. A, li a little mob of favoured um, chimpanzees below the king who are sort of almost agreeing that that's the king, you know. And if there's a rogue chimpanzee, um, uh, you know, that wants to be, wants to challenge that king, um, the, not only the king will um, rip him to shreds with his teeth, huh? Yep, yep, hang on, hang on. Um, but, you know, maybe a group of chimpanzees around the king will help shred that rogue chimpanzee to death, okay? And a pure monarchy might be like that, you know? 
let's imagine this thing called a pure monarchy. Okay, and that's the end of our first political system, which will be called the pure monarchy. Lock it in. Don't lock it in. Don't lock anything in. No, what I am calling it is, you know, a monarchy by divine right. That was the title I ended up with, eventually. Thanks to God, thanks to God. And all the fat priests gather around and say, we recognize that power. God has told us that yes, when the king claims to rule by divine right, we can, uh, this is proven because we've been speaking to, speaking to God and, um, and it is true, God has said that it is true, the king has been given that power by God. And um, so there you have it, a claim and a confirmation that that claim is true. And then the king um, hands a salary to those priests and it all works. That's politics. That's a pure monarchy, you know. Uh, sorry, a perfect monarchy. I like that idea, a perfect monarchy. Uh, let's give these um, three levels. I see, have you noticed there's three levels created there in a perfect monarchy? We've got the ruler, you know, and two, I'll call it the nobility, the nobility class, the rulers by divine right, um, because you have heirs, you know, and you have women who give birth to heirs and things like that. So we have level one, you know, or well, let's call the priests level one, because that's, that's kind of, you know, that even works in the king's favor, doesn't it? They don't have the power, but they're talking to God. So let's call the, um, the priest class level one in the perfect monarchy, and let's call the nobility level two, and let's call everybody else, whether they be rich or poor, level three. You know, so that's the peasants, the slaves, um, the merchants, everybody else, even, and, and don't get me wrong, some people in level three might actually be richer than, a, there'd be people in level three that are richer than people in level two. You know, some, you can have a poor nobleman and a rich merchant, don't worry about that, but the point is there are three classes. Now, France, France, gave, you know, just before the French Revolution, gave those three classes a name. And I think it would be handy to give those three classes to use the French names for those three classes in our construction of a perfect monarchy, which doesn't exist in the real world, but it's worth imagining anyway, because, you know, even if we have impure versions of the ideal, as Plato says, that we still like the idea of the ideals. Yeah, I'll give you that. Hang on. The kids are still coming with money. Still coming for money. Uh, there you go. Just that. Um, that's the third child that's come along with the handout. Um, 
and you put money in it and the hand goes away. So that's three children in a row. All right, so that's the perfect monarchy and the French call those three levels the first estate, the second estate, and the third estate. You'd have to know French to know what estate means. Yeah, I kind of think of it as a block of land. You know, but the first estate is the priest's class. The second estate is the um, in a, uh, is the nobility, and the third estate is everybody else. You know, who, everybody else having no divine connection at all. You know, no connection to the divine. The first estate speaks to the divine. The first estate speaks to God. The second estate derives power from God and the third estate is dazzled by the second estate and in awe of the first estate. Let's use that terminology. The French are good at terminology, so we'll use that. We have now introduced my first political system in this series of podcasts and that political system is called the ideal perfect monarchy in the platonic sense Plato you know he had the world of forms ideals he said play with your ideals even if in the real world you have imperfect things but ideals are very useful to get your head around real world things so an ideal triangle is a nice thing to have in your head Plato said you know if you want to understand triangles in the real world none of which are perfect you can't make a perfect triangle you know, um, where every, where the internal angles of the triangle all add up to exactly 180 degrees. You can't, you know, there's no, no measuring, no way to do that. You know, you can't draw a line that's infinitely thin to, and all that sort of stuff to make a perfect triangle even possible. Um, But, he said, that doesn't mean you throw out the idea of a perfect triangle. Um, the ideal, because an, uh, the idea of a perfect triangle is very helpful, you know, in real in understanding what we loosely call triangles in the real world, which are pretty bloody close to an ideal triangle anyway. Same goes with this perfect monarchy I'm imagining. We have an ideal of a perfect monarchy, and that perfect monarchy is made up of three levels: the first estate, the second estate and the third estate. End of episode. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.